Well, good morning. We are wrapping up a series that we started a couple of weeks ago called Simple. The idea came from a discussion that Ray Kobacher, our senior pastor, and I were having before he departed for his sabbatical about how difficult it is to just simply slow down. That our lives are hyper-complicated and they're the opposite of simple. And we were discussing the, the ramifications of that, that our busyness and the complexities of our life erode our ability to connect with God and to connect with others. So we decided to take a few weeks at the start of a year to focus on simplicity, to simplify our lives. And the hope was that we would recalibrate around this notion of simple. And that as a result, our relationships with God and our relationships with others would improve. Our desire was to simplify, to minimize the noise so we could be more attentive to God and to the people around us. <clears throat> Two weeks ago, we asked the question, how is it with your soul? We took a deep dive into the simple life. We examined our own personal busyness and complexities, and we discovered that the noise of our lives erodes our soul. And that a key part to growing in our relationship with Christ is to care for our soul. Last week, we took a look at what it means to be a simple church. We had the whole pastoral staff up here on the stage. We peeled back the curtain a bit to explain why and how we do things here at Parkview. The bottom line is that we desire to be a simple church. And there are seasons where we get that right, and there are seasons that we struggle, but our desire is to be a simple church. Why? So that we don't add to the noise of your life. So that we strip away what is least important so that you can focus on what is most important, which is connecting with God and connecting with others. And so this week, we're going to examine the simple truth. And I'll tell you right up front, this is not a simple thing, right? It is a simple truth, but it is difficult to live out in reality. I I don't know about you, but the problem for me is that I tend to be suspicious of the simple, right? Five helpful lists, 10 things if you do this, your life will be great. I'm suspicious of the simple, God has wired me to take complex problems, complex difficulties, and make them simple. But when faced with the simple, I have this tendency to overcomplicate. It's been true for most of my life. Whether it was sports or relationships, whatever it is, I tend to take the simple and overcomplicate it. Let me illustrate that for you. I like to fish, all right? Fishing seems like a relatively simple thing to do. Most specifically, I like to fly fish, Right? And the, the key to fly fishing is the back cast and the forward cast. Are you impressed? <laughs> I've taken lessons to learn how to do just that. And I stand with an instructor, and the instructor says, watch your wrist, watch your elbow, back cast, make sure you let it uncoil, be careful of this, be careful of that. And then every lesson, as I'm sure every coaching experience you've ever had, ends with the same thought. Now go and practice. I don't want to practice. I just want to be great at it, right? And so what happens? I don't practice, and then I show up in a stream or a river or a lake, 
and, and I begin to cast, and all the complexities that that instructor gave me come to mind, and I overcomplicate the experience of the back cast and the forward cast. Well, today is one of those simple to complex moments. So I want you to open up your Bible to the book of Matthew, specifically Matthew chapter 22. And if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I want you to take one out of the chair in front of you because in a moment we're going to do something with the Bible. So I want you, everyone to have one in their hand. If you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love for you to steal one of ours. Take it home with you. Make it yours. You can have it. Trust me, no one's going to stop you at the door. So turn to Matthew chapter 22. Before we dive too deeply, I want to give some context as to where we find Jesus in this very moment. So Jesus, who lived on the earth for 33 and a half years, is coming to the conclusion of his public ministry. He's in the area of the temple, and he's teaching. And he's beginning to really frustrate the religious leaders of the day. Now, at this point, there are three distinct religious leadership groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. The Pharisees were the top of the pile. They were the original keepers of both the oral and the written law of God. And they believed that God's love was based on being good enough. Following the law is what earns you to uh, God's favor. These guys were hyper-legalistic and dispensed God's love and redemption accordingly. These guys were um, incredibly difficult on people. Then there were the Sadducees, who were more a politicized group of religious leaders. These guys were elitists. They were in conflict with the Pharisees because of their liberal approach to the law. The Pharisees had a very different and polarizing opinions of many, many topics, one of which was how to earn God's favor. And there was a third group called the Essenes. These guys broke completely away from the other two because they believed that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were corrupting the faith. They were corrupting the temple. And so the Essenes were considered zealots because they lived out in the wilderness in caves and they ate strange food. But they left because they hated what the other two were doing to the temple. So these three leadership groups all had one thing in common. They all overcomplicated what it meant to have a relationship with God. They took the simple and made it complex. And in chapter 22, Jesus moves from outside the temple into the temple as he continues to teach through stories and parables. And the crowds are growing, and his message was capturing the hearts and the minds of the people who were listening. And Jesus is pushing hard against the religious order of the day, the norm of the day. The Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Essenes, they were all about the complex. Jesus was all about the simple. What started out as a singular relationship with God turned into ten laws, right? The ten commandments. The ten commandments, these guys, these religious leaders, took those tens and ten and turned them into 613 different laws and commands. 248 of them were positive, 365 of them were negative. They had created a huge list of do's and don'ts for people to follow. For them, at the end of your life, if you had more checks in the good column than in the bad, you would experience God's love, grace, and mercy. They had created an entire industry around dispensing God's love, according to who? Them. So he steps into the temple, a place that he's been coming to since he was a boy, a place he turned over tables in because of the the way it had become so offensive. This is a place that Jesus loved. 
And at this time, it was a place that had become corrupted, overcomplicated, and quite frankly, a little sad. So Jesus is teaching. He's telling stories. He's teaching parables right up into verse 23 of Matthew chapter 22. Now, just prior to this, at some point, one of the Sadducees tried to take Jesus to task. And they asked him a question, and Jesus tapped him down pretty hard. And verse 33 is the response to that. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Whatever happened between Jesus and the Pharisees, I mean the Sadducees, resulted in embarrassment. Jesus' response angered and frustrated the religious leaders even more. So in verse 34 of chapter 22, the Pharisees get to take their shot at Jesus. Look at what it says in verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. I can imagine them all pooled up in a room together, all 613 commands laid out in front of them. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus had just silenced the Sadducees, and now it was the Pharisees' turn to try to trap Jesus in his own words. So one of them, an expert in the law, someone who was an expert in both the written and the oral law of God, both the written part of it as well as the application part of it, walks out and asks Jesus another provocative question. Now, the premise of this question is not which laws can I ignore and which laws must I obey. The premise of this question is of the 613 laws, which command gets to the heart of them all? And Jesus chooses to respond by quoting the Old Testament when he says, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on those, these two commandments. So here you have the back cast and the forward cast of Jesus' message. Jesus is breaking it down to the most important thing and the other most important thing. This is a very interesting thing that Jesus is doing here. He could have just said, love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And he could have left it there, and we would have spent the last 2,000 years becoming incredibly good mystics, that we're all about God of the universe. He also could have left it by just saying, just love people, and we would become really good humanists. But for the first time, he synthesized all of God's law into two simple things. Love your God and love others. Now, I get that some of you may be checking out right now. You're thinking to yourself, I know these verses. I don't need to pay attention here. Let's go deeper. I want to learn something more. Let's get off of this familiar territory. We want to go deeper. We want to learn more. But Jesus is saying to all of us in this very moment that this is really important. If you don't get this, you don't get me. Now, I want you to hold that Bible that I asked you to take in your hand, and I want you to leave your finger in Matthew chapter 22, and I want you to take your other hand, and I want you to put it at Genesis 1. You got it? For all of you who have ever been intimidated by this book, who have ever thought to yourself, I'll never understand this book. For all of you who have, been, who have struggled in situations where someone asked you a verse and you don't know where it is, 
And for all of you who love this book and want to know it fully, Jesus is saying to you this morning, everything that's in these pages can be summed up in two things. Love God, love everybody you come in contact with. If you don't get that, you don't get me. The entirety of Scripture should be read through, should be experienced through that filter. Everything else that you read is all incredibly important and you should not not read it. But it should be read through the filter of love your God who, with everything you have and love the people that you come in contact with. So this question that's being posed to Jesus was intended to trap him. And Jesus simply says, love God and love each other. My youngest daughter, Piper, would say, booyah. <laughs> Drop the mic. Let's go home. You could almost hear the air leaving their lungs. They had made it so complex, and Jesus was upending the religious program of the day. He was turning over the temple and making it something new, something simple. He was pushing hard against the religion and its lists. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and with all your soul and with all your mind. He is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and he adds to it this phrase, all your mind. What Jesus is saying here is this, love God with all of who you are. Love God on an emotional level, on a spiritual level, on an intellectual level. Love God with all of who you are and love God for all of who he is. God hasn't held back any of his love for you and we shouldn't hold back any of our love for him. But Jesus didn't leave it there. And he adds the second part, love your neighbor as yourself. Again, Jesus is quoting the Old Testament, this time from the book of Leviticus, chapter 19. The word neighbor here that's used in Leviticus is to reference Israelites and the non-Israelites, the aliens that are living in their community. And this same idea, when it's carried to the New Testament, becomes about everyone. Love your neighbor. Love everyone as yourself. Love God with everything you are and love everyone you see. That's the simple truth. The overcomplication of religion is all about lists and it's about who's in and who's out, but the simple truth is about loving everyone. I mean, do you know what that means? That means that loving everyone you come in contact with, every conversation you have, actively pursuing every opportunity to communicate God's love. Why? Because there isn't a single person on this planet that isn't radically loved by God as much as he radically loves you. Let me illustrate this for what it is not. If I were to ask you to identify America's favorite neighbor, you might go to a television show or a book or something of that nature, but I'm going to show you who America's favorite neighbor is. It's Russell. <laughs> right? It's Russell from the movie Up. And he knocks on his neighbor's Carl's door and he says, Carl, I would like to help you get across the street. And Carl says, no, I don't, I don't need to go across the street. And he says, well, maybe I'll help you get across the yard. And Carl says, no, I don't, I don't, I don't need to get across the yard. Well, I can help you cross your porch. No, I, I don't need to cross my porch. I'm fine right where I am. See, Carl, I mean, what, what Russell wanted to do was help his neighbor. But why did he want to help his neighbor? To get a wilderness explorer badge for his vest. That's not what we're talking about here this morning. We tend to think about love our loving our neighbor 
as something ooey-gooey, this emotional love. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is the kind of love that is a meaning, means that you are for your neighbor instead of against your neighbor. That we show up for people. Now, religion loves its lists and its limits. And so if that's true, then I think we need to get really honest about the lists that we keep. Whether you realize it or not, we all have lists. We all both consciously and subconsciously place limits on who we think is worthy of God's love. Do you have a list? I have a list. Have you ever thought about, for a moment, who is on your list? Who is worthy to get God's love? Who is on your list? More importantly, who have you said, no, you're not on my list? Does your family make it onto your list? Now, I get that we could categorically say, yeah, they're on my list because that's the right answer to give in church. Sure, I love my family. They're on my list. But if we were to be really honest this morning, we have to ask ourselves the question, are they really? I bet if you were to dive a bit deeper, there are folks in your family tree who wouldn't make it on the list. You may be thinking, I'm hurt. I'm offended. I'm wounded by that member of my family. Too much pain has occurred. Maybe... This is true of your own home right now. And you've determined for whatever reason that they don't make the list, that they aren't worthy for God's love. What about your ex? Is your ex on the list? Wait, is that a trick question? Because legally I'm not really, I don't have to. No. Who's on your list? Is your ex unworthy of God's love? God's word says love everyone. Now look, I know it's going to look different in each of our homes, in each of our situations, but you have to stop and ask, because they have hurt you so deeply or because you have hurt them so deeply, are they categorically now unworthy of God's love? How do you speak about them when, you're, when they are not around? How do you talk to your kids about them? Do they make the list of being worthy of God's love or not? What about your boss? Is your boss on the list? You say, oh yeah, I love my job. Yeah, but do you love your boss? Do you genuinely love the person? Would they know it? How would they know it? Would they know that they are loved by you and by God? Does your boss make the list? How about black people? Do black folks make your list? I mean, in this day and age, of course, most of us, if not all of us, will say, oh yeah, for sure, they're on my list. But what about the jokes you tell? What about the stereotypes you keep? What about the narrative that runs through your head every time you watch the news? Do white people make it on your list? What about the story that you've come out of? Have you somewhere, somehow convinced yourself that white folks don't deserve to be on the list? What about Middle Eastern folks? Are they on your list? Do you know any? Do you love them? Are Asians on your list? The Mexicans on your list? What about undocumented workers? Are they on your list? Now, I know you've got all your reasons about why or why not, but are they on your list? Do refugees make it on your list? I mean, to the point where you would express enough of God's love that they might make it into your home. Are they on your list? We are literally watching the list unfold every day in the news. And we are watching whole countries say, no, you're not worthy of God's love. You're not worthy of my love. 
How about Muslims? Do Muslims make it onto your list? Do you know any? If you did, how would they know that you love them? What about gay people? Do gay folks make it on your list? I mean, really, actually on the list. I'm not talking quantitatively, but qualitatively. Not yeah, but only up to this point. Do you really love them? Do you love them because they are a child of God without qualification? What about straight people? Do straight people make it on your list? What about those that have rejected you? Those who treated you poorly? Those that pushed you out? What about Republicans? Wait. <laughs> what about Democrats? Do they make it on your list? I mean, think about it. We can write off half the country because we don't like the way somebody votes. Because of what you believe on gun control or what you believe about taxes, they don't make it on your list. Who is on your list? I wonder what would happen if we spent an ounce of the energy that we express blasting our opinions on Facebook. Just one-tenth of that energy that we use to pray for people not naturally on our list. What kind of difference we would make? We have enough of your opinions. The world doesn't need any more of my opinion. What the world needs is for people of faith to say, I choose to love you. I choose to be for you. You and I may categorically disagree on our convictions, but that does not mean that you don't make it on the list. What about college professors? Do they make it on the list? What about university provosts? Do they make it on the list? Who's worthy of your love? Who's worthy of God's love? What about pastors? Pastors on your list? I mean, surely we can all agree pastors are on the list, right? No? Yes? Okay. See how powerful it can be when we stop and consider the list that we have been carrying around our entire lives you see, the Sadducees and the Pharisees were about making lists, who was on the list and who wasn't on the list. They had created a system by which they were in charge and they were the dispensers of God's love and Jesus was literally blowing that up. He's challenging us to love God for everything he is and for everything, he, everything we have. And he's challenging us to love everyone we come in contact with. So I want to give you five simple steps. I'm just kidding, there's only three. On how to apply that into your own life. The first is this. I, I want to challenge us to know our neighbors. Know your neighbors. I mean, literally, the people whose property lines are adjoined to your house. Know your neighbors. I remember a few months ago, we had a, a leadership event here on, on this stage, and a bunch of our leaders were here, and we were talking about what it means to love your neighbor. And that, that day ended, and I walked out into the lobby, and this woman came up and introduced herself to me. And I said, great to meet you. Are you new? And she said, no, I'm your neighbor. <laughs> ah. <laughs> awesome. Thank you for helping me with a sermon illustration six months down the road. And I can give you a bunch of reasons why I didn't know who she was, but she, I didn't know her as my neighbor. 
Know your neighbor. Literally take your house and decide, I'm going to know the people that are around me. Know your neighbors at work. Know your neighbors in the community. A few months ago, I was invited to an open house at the mosque, the new mosque up here on North Avenue. And I debated heavily whether I should go or not go. And I decided I'm going to go. And I went and I met the Iman, their, their pastor. And we engaged in a short but really meaningful conversation. And it was a step towards building a relationship, towards knowing my neighbor. And he told me the most interesting story. He said a friend of his was, had an open house at a mosque in Detroit, just like this one. And a, and a woman showed up, an elderly woman showed up, and she stuck around for the program and learned a little bit about how the mosque works. And as the evening was coming to a close, people were leaving. She was still sitting there in this discussion circle. And she said to the imam, I, I, I need to make a confession to you. And she reached into her pocket and she pulled out a knife. And she set her, the knife down on the chair next to her. And she said, I brought this for protection. And he looked at me in the eye and he said, that isn't good. Now hear me. I'm not asking you to sell out your convictions. I'm not asking you to dilute what you believe about the Bible. I'm not asking you to do any of that. In fact, Jesus isn't asking you to do any of that. He's simply asking you to love. And that's what I'm challenging you to do this morning as well. Know your neighbor. Number two, confess your list. Name it. Confess it. Repent from it. Take your list. Take some time today, the end of the day, tomorrow, to reflect on your list, who's on it. And confess that to God. And then lastly, love. Be for people. Walk across the room. Engage with people who look different, sound different, think different than you. Again, I'm not asking you to change your convictions or your core beliefs. I'm not asking you to think anything differently about this book. Except to say that when you read it, when you try your hardest to live out the expression of God every single day, you have to do it through that filter of love God and love others. If you don't know that, you don't know God. So this morning I want to conclude with a prayer. It's a prayer that I came across last week. And it's a prayer from Martin Luther King Jr. We're going to put it on the screen because I'm going to ask that in a few moments that we stand and we read it together. But I want you to take a moment I want you to hear it first because I don't want you to say it or, or pray it if you don't mean it. Thou eternal God, out of whose absolute power and infinite intelligence, the whole universe has come into being. We humbly confess that we have not loved thee with our hearts, souls, and minds, and we have not loved our neighbor as Christ loved us. We have all too often lived by our own selfish impulses, Rather than by the life of sacrificial love, we revealed by Christ. We often give in order to receive. We love our friends and hate our enemies. We go to the first mile, but dare not travel the second. We forgive, but dare not forget. And so as we look within ourselves, we are confronted with the appalling fact that the history of our lives is the history of an eternal revolt against you. But thou, O oh God, have mercy upon us. Forgive us for what we could have been but failed to be. Give us the intelligence to know your will. Give us the courage to do your will. Give us the devotion to love your will. In the name and spirit of Jesus, we pray. 
Amen. So this morning, I want us all to stand. If this isn't something that resonates with you, that's fine. You don't have to say these words. But if it does connect with your heart, with your soul, I want us to read it together. Because it is a powerful declaration of a very simple truth. Thou eternal God, out of whom absolute power and infinite intelligence, the whole universe has come into being. We humbly confess that we have not loved thee with our hearts, souls, and minds. And we have not loved our neighbors as Christ loved us. We have all too often lived by our own selfish impulses rather than by the life of sacrificial love as revealed by Christ. We often give in order to receive. We love our friends and hate our enemies. We go the first mile but dare not travel the second. We forgive but dare not forget. And so, as we look within ourselves, we are confronted with the appalling fact that the history of our lives is the history of an eternal revolt against you. But thou, O God, have mercy upon us. Forgive us for what we could have been but failed to be. Give us the intelligence to know your will. Give us the courage to do your will. Give us the devotion to love your will. In the name and spirit of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Father God, as we wrap up this morning, we are grateful that your love for us knows no bounds. And we ask, God, that you would give us the courage and the power and the strength to express boundless love to our neighbors and to you. Give us the strength to stand up, to show up, to wake up to what it means to be a follower of you. And God, as we turn our hearts and minds to this song that we're about to experience, give us an overwhelming sense of compassion as we spend the duration of our time together confessing. Give us the courage to wake up. It's in your name that we pray. Imagine a world where people were critical of us for our ideology and for our beliefs, but envious of, envious of us for how we loved people inside our circle and outside our circle. Imagine a world where all the followers of God led with love, that we were for more than what we were against. Imagine that world. Father God, as we conclude this morning, give us the courage. Give us the strength to stand up, to wake up, and to love. As your church leaves this building, give them the courage and the strength to reflect the love that you have for us to our neighbors simple truth. We love you with everything that we have, everything that we are. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Listen, there are folks that 
would love to come down here and pray with you. If you would like some prayer this morning, please make your way down here. I know it's weird. Uh, next week, we, we start a, with a new guest speaker who's going to be here next week. So show back up next week. Love to see you. Have a great week. <laughs>